You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. I think we all love stories. And I want you to just think about in your heart right now. It'll matter later in the message. I'm not going to ask you to tell anybody and you can elbow each other if you want. But what's your favorite kind of story? Whether that's a show that you watch or books that you read or movies that you tend to go toward. Maybe it's a love story and you know how it's going to end. They're going to kiss. It's going to be happy. But you want to see the journey through the whole process. Or, or maybe it's a true crime story and you already know who is guilty. The Murdoch's did it. Like, this is what happened. <laughs> or maybe it's a sob story. Sometimes my wife watches shows and it's like, the dog died is the main part of the show. She's crying. I'm like, you probably like that Christmas shoes song too, right? Like, it's just made to make you cry. That's the whole point of this. She's like, isn't it wonderful? I'm like, no. And there's different sports movies, action movies, all kinds of different movies that are there, sci-fi, some of you like supernatural. Some of you think because of the stories that I tell in, in our lives that, that I make stories up, and I don't. You can ask our family. There's a lot that I don't share. And then others of you don't really know our family or know our story. Think, I wonder what it's like at the past. Like if, I saw somebody a couple weeks ago at a, a sporting event, and they're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> As if I only exist, like right here in this moment. And so... Some of you think that I just, you know, pray all the time with my family and as they go from room to room, preach a mini sermons and <laughs> don't usually do that. But there was a couple weeks ago, there are these pastor moments in a pastor's house. A couple of my daughters were watching a show. I think it was on Lifetime or TNT, one of those channels. And it was the Hunger Games from 2012. Some of you may remember that, that movie. If you don't know that movie, I'm going to ruin it for you in just a second. You've had over a decade uh, to watch it. And so uh, what happens is, um, there's this dystopian, uh, post-apocalyptic time period. It's really an uplifting show. And so uh, the world has been uh, nuclear bombed. There's 12 districts, really 13, but 12 districts, kind of like there's 12 tribes in the Old Testament. There's 12 districts. They're all really poor. The capital is rich. They have a bunch of technology. They run everything. And kind of like Rome in the Bible, uh, they would have Hunger Games, how Rome has crucifixions. And uh, they were doing that because the winner of the Hunger Games got food for their district, but really it was a death match. And it was showing that the capital was in charge. And then for their entertainment, they would put these kids between 12 and 18 years old that were picked as a tribute to go fight in a death match. Well, my kids are watching the first episode. This little girl, Primrose Everdeen, has been selected by a lottery. And I run in the room, I go, stop, pause, pause the movie. And I, they're teenagers. I wish they'd go, teach us the Bible, dad. <laughs> They're like, oh, what do you want? Oh, he pays the bill, so I got to stop the movie. And so, <laughs> I said, do you realize what you're about to see? And they've seen it before. So they're like, yep. I goes, this is the substitutionary atonement. <laughs> and they're like, what? That's a theological word that we use for what Jesus did on the cross because he was dying as our substitute in our place. And there's no forgiveness of sins unless there's a shedding of blood. That's the atonement. And I said, I don't know if the writers know this. They're writing Hunger Games, but... What's about to happen is that the star of the show, Katniss Everdeen, is a messianic figure. She steps in and takes the place of her sister. Her sister's headed for a sure death. She leads a revolt and a rebellion. In fact, some of you might know the symbol. And it's a revolt and rebellion against the leadership of that time period and against the oppression. 
And without getting into all the details, because my kids did not let me get into, hey, there's 12 districts and 12 tribes, and they're impoverished. Jesus came to set the captives free, and they're oppressed, and all those types of things that you get to. At the end of when you see great stories oftentimes have a messianic figure, whether it's Beauty and the Beast or Frozen, or there's an action movie where the main hero gets killed, but he's got enough strength to shoot one more bullet. There's a resurrection moment. And at the end of that first Hunger Games, this is where I'm ruining it, so plug yours, you don't want to hear this part. No one takes her life, but she's willing to lay it down. She doesn't literally die in that, but then has a resurrect, a second life after the Hunger Games. Hence, there's more than one. <laughs> there are sequels. See, the story that we're talking about today with Jesus is better than that, though. One, because it's true. Two, because it's a crime story, a murder mystery, a love story, an action movie. All of the, whatever story you picked, the gospel's probably got elements of that all wrapped up into it. And here's the best part. Jesus is not a messianic figure. He is the Messiah. And he doesn't stay dead. He is risen. That's right. And so like Paul says in Philippians, I want to know the power of the resurrection. Do you? Not just the story, but the power of it. Today we're going to look at, and then what we're going to do through this series, it's a, a seven-week series, and you're already here for week one, so you already got that. I invite you to come back for uh, weeks two through uh, you know, seven that are coming up. It's, we're going to look at the seven words that Jesus says from the cross and see through those words and through the lens, the bloody lens of the cross, how he is an uncommon savior, unlike any other savior that's ever existed Mostly because he's alive. But if you get your Bibles, Luke chapter 23 is where we'll start today. The first words that Jesus said from the cross. And they're the most controversial words. And so I've titled today's message, Controversial Forgiveness. It's when he says from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think they did, right? Because the Persians invented crucifixion. Well... 400, 300, 400 years before this. And the Romans have perfected it. They know exactly how they're torturing you, but they don't know who he is. They don't understand the weight of what they're doing. Here, you've got to remember, we're entering into a very intense moment. Before I start reading these verses, I'll start reading verse 32 to give us a little context. Jesus has been arrested. That's controversial. They come at night with an army. Why didn't they arrest him during the day? Because they knew it would lead a revolution. He spent six hours hanging about two feet above the ground after being flogged, beaten, even though he was found innocent. Controversy. This is a true crime story. You want supernatural? You like sci-fi? You want mystery? It's all here. But the reality is it's all a love story. And what Jesus does is the opposite of what you would expect from the cross. He's not crying, pity, help me, this hurts. One commentator I read said he is reigning from the cross. He knew the cross was coming. He probably saw other people crucified. Rome did it a lot. In fact, if you're a history buff, you might read that about 70 years, there was a guy named Spartacus, there were about 70 years before Jesus was born, there was a revolt against Rome. About 100,000 soldiers in that army. Rome crushed them, but took 6,000 of them and crucified them along the roadway for 120 miles. Can you imagine going around 540 and people being crucified? So people knew the point of crucifixion was like the capital city in Hunger Games. This is what happens to you if you rebel. And it was a picture of your submission to Rome. Jews believed that if you died on a tree, it was a curse. Jesus is reversing the curse, and he's ruling with authority from the cross. Look what happens. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Arrested, beaten, 
He's hung on the cross now. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. He's on a cross that was originally, from human perspective, designed for a guy named Barabbas. The guys on his right and left are probably Barabbas' partners. Barabbas was a murderer and a rebellion leader, insurrectionist. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Not a lot of details about what that meant, because first century people would know. We get tattoos of it and put it on our car and wear t-shirts and necklaces and earrings. It was not even considered polite conversation to mention crucifixion then because it's so gruesome. And the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left, and through all this, his first words from the cross, probably the most controversial. It's a prayer. Jesus started his ministry in Luke with a prayer. His first words on the cross are a prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And that was prophesied hundreds of years prior. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, a mocking if, of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a, also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Pilate put it there. The Jews didn't want it there. And here we see the first of his last words. Have you ever heard the statement, last words are lasting words? There's a lot of famous people. They'll write down what some of their last words were. Winston Churchill, some of you know him, a great orator and leader during a very difficult time in human history, said, I'm bored with it all. <laughs> Sorry we didn't entertain you more, Churchill. There was one playwright from uh, 18th century I was reading about, and as he was dying, his priest came into the room. The priest said to him, I bet you want to talk to me. And his reply was, I've been talking to your boss. Why do I need to talk to you? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but my favorite, as I was reading some of these this week, was a, a convicted murderer who was dying in capital punishment in Florida in the 70s. There was no question he was guilty. There was a lot of political debate about capital punishment. The argument was that poor people die of capital punishment a lot more than wealthy people. And so his statement was, if you don't have the capital, then you get the punishment. Hmm. There's a tendency to look at Jesus on the cross with sympathy, like, oh, like he's the victim. No one took his life, he laid it down. He's not a victim here. In fact, this is the path to victory. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus and no one can come to the Father unless Jesus does what he's doing here on the cross. And what we see Jesus doing here on the cross is controversial because he's offering forgiveness. First of all, because it's to us. <laughs> That's controversial. As great as y'all look, we're all rotten sinners. We don't deserve it. We wouldn't ask for it unless God worked in our hearts. And here you see this controversial forgiveness. It's a controversial story. Jesus' forgiveness is a controversial story. We're familiar with controversy, whether it's, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop or Donald Trump's documents he took home. He worked so hard, he took the documents home. He's like, homework. And so all that stuff that's going on, and we see it, all the like college admission scandals, and like, it's who's sleeping with who, and cover-ups. And I don't need to define controversy for you, because you know it when you see it. Everything about this passage is controversial, including whether it should even be in the Bible, by the way, from an academic standpoint. 
If you're a skeptic, you might say, oh, you don't even know what's supposed to be in the Bible. Well, no, we don't actually have the original autographs of the Bible, the original writings of the Bible. Because if we did, I think people would worship it. But we've got documents that get real close and we can put the pieces together, but sometimes people debate because other older manuscripts get manipulated. And so some academics will argue this statement was added to the Bible because early Christians wanted there to be seven statements, the number of completion. But what appears to have actually happened was in some of those later manuscripts, some scribes took it out because they were anti-Jewish. Because many in the early church believed that what happened in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed was a judgment on the Jews for what happened to Jesus on the cross. So Jesus to say to them, Father, forgive them. We don't want that in there. So somebody took it out. The internal evidence, and that's why it's in your Bible, says that it should be in the Bible. So academically, before we even get to the topic, this is a controversial verse. Also skeptic, something else for you to think about, is that Isaiah 52 and 53 uh, graphically describes the crucifixion of Jesus 300 years before the Persians invented crucifixion. Interesting. It's like all this was actually part of God's plan, not something that just happened to him. And here, to understand the weight and the controversy of this, you've got to put it in context. Remember what's happening here is that Jesus is on a pursuit of you. This is a rescue story as well. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. We're the lost. We all, like sheep, go astray. We all go our own way, and he's coming after us. And Easter is this great time of celebration we can't miss. It's a bloody, messy story. A pursuit story of rescued from being kidnapped. He uses language of debt often when talking about sin, and he says he came to give his life as a ransom for us. Easter is always a, a fun time in our house. You, get, you know, so many people come to church and God changes lives and all those kind of things, but it's also, there, we've noticed over the years of being a pastor here, there's a theme that difficulty often happens to. Different challenges, we would call them spiritual attacks. Some of you don't believe in that. It is real, whether you believe it or not. And One of the things that I oftentimes think about is that it was on the day after today, in 2016, that our youngest daughter was kidnapped out of our front yard. It was a difficult day. Had an incredible Sunday. Eight o'clock service, supposed to be all just church people. We had three people get saved in the eight o'clock service that year. It was awesome. So I'm like, wow, God, you're saving saved people. This is awesome. Next day, I go to study a passage. It's in Mark chapter three. I encourage you to read it on your own. It's a tough passage. Talks about an unforgivable sin. Talks about another one for you skeptics. Jesus most angry opponents, never questioned his miracles. Hmm. But they did say that he did them by the power of Satan. And so Jesus tells a tough story in there, but tying up a strong man. Uh, What happened for us is, I'm studying that passage, I'm going, what? We were celebrating Jesus, the resurrection, what's this stuff? I'm talking about this unforgivable sin. So I just kind of stopped studying that day. Uh, I took my family to dinner, come back home. We get back home from dinner. My oldest daughter is 11 at the time, Ella. She goes outside to play. And my four-year-old daughter, Gracie, is our youngest daughter, goes out to play as well. Five or so minutes later, Ella comes running in the house. Says, Some man just stole Gracie. Some man just took Gracie. What would you do if you were a parent? That moment, I didn't have shoes on or anything. I ran out of the house. Two guys pointed me to the woods. I run towards the woods. 
I didn't know what I was going to do, but I'd do whatever I needed to do. I didn't know where to go. I'd go wherever I needed to go. And so would you, going after one of your kids. Long story short, I'm going to tell a longer story, some other context. She was physically not harmed that day because one of our neighbors stopped him from going into the woods and took her from him. And when I got back to my neighborhood, there was an ambulance. My other neighbor was all bloody in the back of it. I didn't know what had happened, but that mentally ill man who took my daughter had tried to kill my neighbor as well. And there were police cars, a dozen or so, in our little cul-de-sac of 10 houses. And I would have done anything to get my daughter. The Mark 3 passage, when it's talking about Satan doesn't cast out Satan, is what Jesus says. He goes, a house can't be divided against, a kingdom, he could have said to our country, a country divided against itself will fall. It's just a proverbial truth. It's just known. And he's saying Satan's not so stupid that he's going to fight against himself. And when these people are saying, as he heals leprosy and opens blind eyes, he's doing this by the power of Satan. He goes, no, no, no. And he tells a story. He says, you can't just go into a strong man's house and rob him. First, you've got to go into the house and tie the strong man up. Then you can loot the house. What Jesus is saying is, Satan's a strong man. He's called the God of this air, the God of this age. Jesus is leading a rebellion against the God of this age, against all the temporary stuff that we oftentimes functional saviors bow down to. And he's inviting everybody into it, and he's rescuing his kids. And if you've placed your faith in him, you're one of those kids. And so he knows the cross is coming. He says in Luke chapter 9, if anyone's going to come after me, you've got to take up your cross. Then Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 is a turning point in the gospel. No more miracles. Not doing this public teaching. It says he set his face toward Jerusalem. He's looking to the cross. If I were writing the chosen, I would have him see someone being crucified in that moment. I don't know if that's happened. But surely he saw it and he knew what he was doing. And so here he is, he's being crucified. He's been arrested at night. One of his closest friends, Judas, we're all like, Judas, he's bad. No one knew Judas was bad at the time. They trusted him with the money. He taught in Jesus' name. He did miracles in Jesus' name. When, the, when Jesus would mention one of them's a devil, one of them's going to betray him, they're all looking around. And I think they're going, is it me? Checking their own hearts. They're not all going, it's Judas. We all know it's Judas. Judas comes to him and kisses him. He says, you betray the son of man with a kiss? That's not what a kiss is for. It's supposed to be brotherly love. And they came with soldiers. And Jesus says, Did you come? am I a robber? I taught in the temple all the time. Why didn't you arrest me then? Because they knew the people would revolt. And then they put him on fake trials. We don't have time to go through each one, but the chief priests, who are a sham, like many, Religious people, they're using religion and God to get the God they really want, power and money. He says, are you the son of God? Yep. It's really clear. Those of you who say that Jesus never professed to be God in the Bible, read that. They tore their clothes. They said, it's blasphemy. But Jews killed people by stoning them. So why is he being crucified? Because they couldn't kill him. So they take him to Pilate. Rome. Pilate says, I don't, I don't find, there's 10 times that Pilate tries to release Jesus. 10 times. He says he's innocent, tries to release him. Nope. Sends him to Herod. Herod, Jesus doesn't say a word to Herod. Herod just debauched. Herod's the guy who killed his relative, John the Baptist. He's already been confronted in his sin. Jesus is not going to cast pearls before swine. Herod, 
He's headed for destruction. He knows it, and he's not interested in turning. Let that sink in. For those of you who have an image of Jesus is just a nice guy. Doesn't say a word to him. Then, back before Pilate, Pilate says, hey, uh, I found him innocent. People are angry. So to appease a bloodthirsty crowd, he has him flogged. 60% of people who were flogged the way that Jesus was flogged died from the flogging. So Jesus has been whipped with a cat of nine tails. That means they let him over a post, stretched out the skin on his back, took this whip that had nine leather straps on it, at the end of it, bone and metal and glass, and they would, the torturer, this is his job, honey, how was your day? Oh, only five people died today. It's usually six. Like, what do you say in that job? Supposed to whip him so that the, the hooks all catch the ribs. Not in the front, you rip his stomach out, people will die right there on the spot. But enough to flail the back so they can barely move. Isaiah says that the Messiah will be beaten beyond the recognition of a human. Play blind man's bluff with him, put thorn crowns on his head. Here he is on the cross. This is probably a whisper. The tense of the verse is that he said this repeatedly. Six hours, only seven statements. It's not a lot of talking in six hours. But what he said was powerful. Can you imagine being one of the soldiers? There were four soldiers assigned to each one of the men that were crucified. Execution detail. One of the ones that drove a nail into his hands. And then you see his lips moving and you expect him to beg, help me. Or vengeance. You don't understand what you're doing. Oh, I'm going to get you. You like those people that get kicked off reality TV shows. You'll see me again. I've never seen any of them again. Short life. Anyway. It's not what Jesus does. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You didn't ask for forgiveness? You might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't even need forgiveness. It's not my job. This I do this all the time. Who are you? They mock him. They gamble over his clothes. It's controversial because it's undeserved, unrequested. And here's the most controversial part. Most people, it's unreceived. But for those who receive it, it's transforming. What happens as we'll go through this series, we'll see is that Jesus says some other statements. I thirst. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What did that guy do to earn salvation? Nothing. Just like us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. And then finally, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then darkness covers the earth, the veil in the temple. The veil was 30 feet tall, 60 feet wide. The thickness of my palm is torn in two. That's not because of an earthquake. God ripped the veil, showing that we don't need a priest. We have access to God if we come through Jesus Christ. Amen? But the earthquake, think about the earthquake. That gets your attention. Did you see that in February there were some earthquakes in Turkey, Syria? 50,000 people died. Magnitude is 7.8. That's significant. If you didn't see that on the news and you watch the news regularly, you're watching the wrong news. (laughs) 50,000 people dying, that's big news. I read one article. I couldn't even believe the number, but it said 173,000 buildings either collapsed or were significantly damaged. Hundreds of contractors were arrested because they went around the codes, broke the law, and a lot of people died. When Jesus died, the earth shook. There were aftershocks. One of them is the resurrection. 
It's not just an empty cave. He had to die so he could defeat death. See, forgiveness is not God looking the other way. It's not you believe the right facts, so therefore he will just look the other way for your sin. Sometimes we minimize sin and we make it like that. And we don't understand there has to be payment in order for him to be just. But there has to be righteousness in order for him to be righteous. You can't just look the other way. What happens on the cross is horrific, almost unimaginable. But the aftershocks are terrific, almost unbelievable. That's controversy. The aftershocks are, he, he not only has power over death, but he gives you access to the power of the resurrection. He begins to transform you at the core level. And one of the litmus tests of whether you've experienced this forgiveness is whether you forgive others. Do you have anyone to forgive? Followers of Christ? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm not really even talking to you because you need to experience this forgiveness. But if you have, how do you know if it's real? That day when I came back to my neighborhood and there were police cars everywhere and my neighbor was bloody and I stepped in the back of the ambulance and I started talking to him because I thought he tried to rescue her. I didn't know that someone had just tried to take his life. I saw the man who had taken my daughter at the end of a neighbor's driveway and I went to him. My first thought was not forgiveness, just so you know. I don't think I'm ready to share with you the darkness of all the things I actually did think. As I was heading toward him though, the Holy Spirit said to me, Scott, what about all those stories you've talked about to your church about forgiveness? Excuse me, Holy Spirit, I'm doing something. <clears throat> Police officer stepped in front of me graciously. Mr. Lear, we're gonna need you to go over there. And then another police officer stepped up and said, hey, you're that pastor. I was at your church. I'm like, oh, why does that happen? Come on. <laughs> the Lord's rebuke or redirection, I don't know. I was not ready to forgive. I wanted vengeance. And so do some of you. I went through the court systems for a couple years with that scenario. My daughter wasn't physically harmed, but there's certainly been repercussions, aftershocks from that. And on the day that I stood in court and read our statement of what it did to our family and what I would like the judge to do, I said, um, because I've received incredible forgiveness, I don't hold this against him. He doesn't owe me anything, but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. Some of you need to forgive. That means you're not demanding payment to you. You're not seeking vengeance. And let that go. There's a piece of paper on your seats. It was an invitation to this series. And if you're a follower of Christ, I encourage you today to consider using the backside of that. I don't care if you don't give it to anyone. Use the backside of that to write a note like the one that I shared with the judge that day about somebody you need to forgive. And, and maybe read it to the Lord in prayer. And pray about how God could empower you to forgive that person. If you don't have anyone to forgive, please give out that piece of paper. We'd love to see them at church next week. It's an invitation to the series. And if you haven't received that forgiveness, the other thing, it's not just a controversial story and a transformational story that it changes those who've received it, but the only way you can receive this forgiveness is humbly. You've got to humble yourself. And we're a church family, and so if we were watching a movie together, this is the point of the movie where I'd run in and say, stop the movie, stop the movie, pastor moment. And as the, the little girl has been selected to be the tribute, and Katniss Everdeen steps in, lead the rebellion, this is where I step in and I go, you're not Katniss. Jesus is the one who stepped in in your place to save you because you are headed 
for death. That means you have to humble yourself and say, I needed to be rescued. And in this story, one of the controversial things is that very few received it. One did, at least one of those four centurions, some four soldiers that were there. We'll talk more about them as we go through the series more, but Matthew chapter 27. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, speechless, but, and said, now listen, these people saw people die all the time. It was their job. Isn't this just another guy dying? Uncommon savior. Truly, this was the son of God. Oh, you wait. Wait till Sunday. The resurrection, what is proclaimed from the cross is now possible in your life because of the resurrection. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to celebrate your resurrection. I thank you for your son, Jesus. Unlike any other savior, we go to lots of things to rescue us. Alcohol, our marriage, think of security from our bank accounts. Only you are our living savior who is alive because of the resurrection, offering forgiveness because of your relationship with your father. Father, forgive them. When we sin, we do not realize we're driving nails into your hands. We do not realize who you truly are. We do not realize the reward of faithfulness over sin. Thank you for your grace. Help us to be gracious, those who've received it. Those who haven't, right now can be your moment of salvation. The Bible says, I'm gonna put the verses on the screen. You can look if you want. I don't care if you peek. Put in the spirit of prayer. I want you to know that I'm not making this up. That we all sin. Everybody sins. So we all need to be saved from our sin. There's only one way to, G- to God, it's through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way you can have spiritual life. The Bible also says, Romans 6.23, the wages, what you earn, sins oftentimes talked about as debt. What you earn is actually negative. You work all day. But you sin, sin, sin. If you break the law one way, you've broken the whole thing. But I don't sin as bad as, it doesn't matter. The wages of sin is death. Separation from God for all of eternity. That's what you deserve. That's why Jesus went to the cross to rescue you from that, to save you. If you want that forgiveness, the Bible also says, Romans 6.23 as well, there's a gift from God. It's eternal life. The way you receive it, Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he's in charge of your life. You surrender your life to him. And believe in your heart that God raised him, not just that he died on the cross, but that he raised him from the dead. You will be saved or delivered, rescued. For so the heart one believes, it's not with the mind, the demons believe the right facts about Jesus. So the heart one believes and is justified and it's with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you want to do that right now, I'm going to pray a prayer. If you're watching online or here live, I ask you to pray this prayer. If you pray this prayer, there's a QR code in the seat in front of you and I want you to let us know so we can help you grow in a relationship with Jesus. You're, you're saying, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. I want to step into new life. And so will you pray this? God, I, I acknowledge my sin before you. Well, that's not a huge acknowledgement, to be honest. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. You might even acknowledge some specific sin. I won't guess those. You and God know. In fact, it might be the thing that's actually been holding you back from trusting him. You think it's too bad or you don't want to admit it or you're hoping you can clean yourself up or you're hoping that you can... None of that's needed. A thief on the cross, like Jesus, is probably a murderer. He deserves to be there. 
He doesn't claim that he doesn't. He doesn't even get baptized. He never goes to a Bible study. He probably doesn't know a single verse. He's with Jesus in paradise. Because he turned to him and called him Lord, believed in who he is. You want to do that? Because you can't do it. Humble yourself before him. Confess my sins, God. I believe that you rose from the dead. You died for my sin. You rose from the dead. Today, I want to ask you to be Lord and ask for your forgiveness. The forgiveness you offered on the cross, I want that. That's you. And just say that to him right now. I'll give you a moment. And you can continue in that moment. I'm going to say amen in just a second. What we're going to do is we're going to continue to celebrate today. We've got 25 people getting baptized, 11 of them in this service. So there's going to be a video. We're going to hear some of their stories. The worship team is going to come. As you feel led, you can stand. If you know somebody who's getting baptized in the service and you want to come closer, it's on your right and my left over here is where it's going to be. But it'll be up on the screen by the words where we're singing the song today. The reason why we're baptizing, one of the reasons why we do that today, it's a picture of the resurrection. People are going to get dunked under the water just as Jesus was in the grave for three days. We won't hold anyone under that long, I promise. And they come back out. And what they're saying is, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a new life. This is a, a second life, a life. There's pre-Jesus life, now there's a new life in Jesus. And yeah, you'll still sin, but now you've got the power of the resurrection. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You've got the ability to fight that sin. The forgiveness that make no sense before. You now know the weight of your own forgiveness. And here empowered to do those things. And so as a church, we watch that, we celebrate with them and we might encourage them today. And then as the days go by, I was there for your baptism. I know that you were saying, I'm gonna walk with Jesus. And we hold each other accountable in that. So we're gonna do that. I'm gonna finish this prayer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.